0: again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Some Bibles have section headings created by the publisher for the reader's benefit. My Bible says head coverings here, and if that's all I took away, I'd miss the real truth of the passage. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Authentic Life, with the first part of this message entitled, Authentic Manhood and Womanhood which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. There are texts in
1: God's Word that uh, most every preacher loves to preach. I get the privilege of preaching one of those uh, coming up in just a few weeks. It is in 1 Corinthians 13. It's on love. Who doesn't like the topic of love? Who's going to be upset for saying that love is important? You should have love. People should love you. Everybody, oh, that's a great topic. Love it, love it, love it. There are certain texts that, uh, that preachers love to avoid. One would be, for instance, a 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about manhood and womanhood and the issues that are related to that subject matter. With that in mind, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. (laughs) I would be a foolish man to start teaching the text, which is a very brief and short text to teach. Today, just two verses. But I would be a foolish man not to spend quite a bit of time laying a foundation so that when the text comes, it becomes apparent and understandable. Uh, To do so, Uh, Let me just kind of look in the past. Do you know that 50 years ago, I was not, the church wasn't here, so I was not preaching at that time. But 50 years ago, I know had I been here and preached that particular text, this text, there would not be one thought. It would be like, of course, that's what God's Word says. That's what we've always believed as a church and we believe it now. When you go to 30 years ago, first time that I taught this, 30 years ago. And this church, when I, when I taught it, there were, some, there were some raised eyebrows maybe, you know, like, hmm, I've been hearing some things that seem to counter what I just heard here. Hmm, wonder, wonder what that's all about. A little over 10 years ago, I preached this again. And when I preached it here, I'll tell you, there was pushback. Because 10 years ago, there was like, oh, whoa, 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 this does not seem to be fitting into our belief system. Certainly not by the majority of the people here at Perimeter, but by many people. Now my question is, what happens when I teach it now 10 years later? You know the changes in the mindset, beliefs, the perspective of the world and the church today on this subject matter. There's been a shift in what we would call worldview. You need to understand that. Major, major shift. A worldview is your belief about the world and life in which we live. It is shaped by primarily two things either by the world at large and what the world believes, and then secondly, either by the word, meaning the word of God. And so if you think about the power of messaging, you realize how critically important it is that the message be heard. And so what's happened is people certainly outside the church are hearing a lot of messaging today on manhood and womanhood. Church people are hearing very little, if anything, about this in the church today And now even the message of the church is now sounding almost, if not the same, as the message of the world. And so I look at you that are in this young generation, and I think the messaging you're having, everything is bombarding you. Everywhere you turn, people you respect, people you love to be around, people that you listen to. You go, they believe this, and why not? Because we're not hearing this from the church very much. And so the messaging is having a great, great influence. Fifty years ago and beyond, past that time, it was one message, it was a common message, it was in every Bible-believing church, and it basically was saying that man was created male and female and was created equal in every respect, but at the same time, differing roles that there were major differences between the male and the female, different traits and characteristics, and that would be honored. Well, if you want to put a name on that teaching or belief, it's called complementarianism. Just so when you read or you study, you hear, you'll understand that's complementarianism. Complementarianism is now leaving the church for the most part. You're finding fewer and fewer. Maybe it's a a minority now. Of churches that hold to that. Your old time historical traditional churches, yeah, they, they probably hold on, but the new and upcoming and you know, young church with young leadership, they're not there anymore. They hold a position that is called the egalitarian position. Egalitarian. So look it up sometime. In fact, I'll do that for you. I'll give you the definition of, of this term egalitarianism. It's the belief that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. Do you hear anything wrong with that? I don't. In fact, if that is the definition, then I am an egalitarian. But I would not put myself in that camp today because, most understand, that is not really what egalitarians are saying today. Egalitarianism is really changing one word. Listen to The difference. It's the belief that all people are equal and deserve the same, not equal, but the same rights and opportunities. So what we're talking about is the emergence of the ideal of blending the traits of the masculine and the feminine together. And the more that can be done, the better it is. There's a name given to that, and it's called androgyny. You need to know that word, androgyny. Now, androgyny is highly, highly um, uh, ex- espoused by some of the finest of people in, in the educational world, in the, uh, s- the world of psychology. You can just, across the board, journalist. I mean, it's, it's just now becoming the common what you're going to expect. So I'm going to read from four periodicals, just a little statement, four periodicals, and these go back as far as 10 years ago to show you that this isn't just something that's today. It's, it's been happening now for a, a decade or so in a big way. New York Times says, spiritual androgyny delivers a man into a new kind of freedom denied to those locked in the old male stereotypes. Newsweek. Androgyny represents the full potential of the sexes, a perfect representation of cosmic unity. Saturday Review. We're going to need to move away from the two-sex role scheme if our culture is to survive. People Magazine, these days androgyny seems almost as American as, well, dad and apple pie. The point being that, hey, we, we've got to get away from this thing where we make these differences in, in, in male and female as is going on today. And so the recent shift now has gone a step further. It used to say we need to take the traits of the, of the male that are so good and the traits of the female that are so good and, and why just have you have these and you have those. Let's blend them and, and men have both. And women, you need to have both. That is now changing to where now it's moved from traits to bodies. We need to blend the bodies together. And you know the growing transgender community and all that we're hearing today in regard to that. And though this is a popular view today, very popular, I think we can say that research is going to suggest that it's not so ideal. In fact, there's a study out of the University of South Wales. It says, those scoring high in androgyny exhibit unassertiveness, erotic behavior, and low self-esteem. The University of Colorado in Boulder, study there, says, regarding males, there is a strong positive association between masculinity and mental health. I'm going to quote from a book, Family Questions, about its author, Alan Carlson. It says this, It should be noted that after some delay, honest scientists committed to authentic research have come forward and done their job. They've exposed the errors of the androgyny theorists and affirmed the facts. While the debate still rages at that level, at least their findings are being discussed and the truth may prevail. At a more popular level, though, the tale is different. There, it has been the helping professionals, social workers, counselors, curriculum advisors, teachers and the magazine media, People, Psychology Today, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, which have elevated corrupted science to the level of public truth. These professions and magazines are responsible for incalculable levels of psychological damage to Americans young and old and for the corruption of many American institutions. Now, having just read that, I'm going to guarantee you that if I held a position that was opposite of this, as many do, and searched, I'll guarantee you I could find some research that would support my side of the argument. I guarantee you I could find periodicals that, that say just the opposite of what, you know, I mean, there's plenty. I mean, there's plenty of evidence in people's minds to warrant an argument for one or the other. So what do we say? How do we know? See, my, my idea of doing this is not persuade you. See, therefore, our position is right. Keep in mind, I can argue probably very I don't have the data, but I guarantee I could find it that would somehow support the opposite view of what I'm teaching here. So what are we going to say? How do you know? Here's what we say. And I'm speaking to you, the Christian church. I'm speaking to the majority of you who are Christians, self-described Christians. Very thankful for the many of you that are here that are, that are seeking to figure out the faith. Man, we always, so many welcome guests every week just searching to figure it out. It's a great place to do it. It's a safe place. But to you, the Christian community, I'm saying, here's how we decide. According to the Christian faith, we have and we believe that there is truth that comes from God it's called the scriptures, the Bible and we go to the rule, the infallible rule of faith and practice as we call it and we say what does God's word have to say well why do we do that? Well because as God says in Isaiah 55 he says for my ways are not your ways neither are my thoughts your thoughts says the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts And therefore, we have to say before our God, we became Christians based on what? What we know in God's Word. We believe God's Word. Therefore, let's follow. So now the issue is, well, what does the Word really teach? And I'm going to make a welcome invitation to anybody. You see something different in the text that I'm teaching than what I'm teaching? Don't buy what I'm saying. I'm just trying to be faithful to what God's Word says so that there is also the opportunity for people to hear, okay, there's the world. I hear the world. I'm not hearing the word. What what, what does the word really say? What does it mean? So with that, let's look at his word, but let's pray first. Father, I'm going to invite you, if you will, open our minds and hearts, give us understanding, give us everything necessary to embrace what you believe. Let us not believe anything but what we see taught of you. So grant us understanding even in this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your outlines, you see that this is a two-part, this week and next week. This week, God's truth regarding authentic manhood and womanhood. We look at two verses only. It's very brief. It won't take me just a couple of minutes to go through the text to understand it. The the first two verses we look at today teach the principle, the biblical principle. That's, That's what's so most important for us. But it's going to be an interesting exercise next week, because next week we pick up at verse 4, and we'll go through verse 16, and there we're going to be applying the principle to a specific culture, the culture of a church called Corinth. Now, uh, you're going to get into that. You, many of you are very familiar to the argument, well, the women should have their head covered and, and uh, you know, the, should be careful about the length of your hair, because your hair can, well you're going to find out that that will become a cultural issue. So we'll have to ask the question, I'll touch on it this week, we'll hit on it next week. How do you know if something's cultural? In fact, today it's become quite common in the Christian community when something begins to change and we like the change, even though it seems to go against everything God's Word's ever taught. It's an easy category to say, that's a cultural issue. That's a cultural issue, it's changed now so we have to understand how do you know if it is a cultural issue so next week all right got to have the historical background now for this text the background of the uh, of this you have to understand about the eastern world uh, and particularly the mid eastern world at that time as well as even today there's custom of veils head coverings and i'm not talking about just for church but in many places anywhere i remember a few years back i was in iran and, and wherever you walk, you'd see these clerics with their long white white uh, gowns on. And they'd have a long pole, a stick, and at the end would be feathers. And, and they would walk up to a, to a lady and, and would touch her ankles because maybe for some reason her, her skirt got just a little high and you could see some flesh. And that would be, no, 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 no. We'll take you out of here because we believe in modesty and that's not being modest So it was all about modesty, cover your face, and so, but it was also, it was also a sign particularly of the face and the head of submission, it was the idea of, of, you know, I I really do believe in authority, and I'm under the authority, and so forth, and we listen to that, and we go, what in the world, why that stuff? I agree, that, that's just crazy stuff, but that was part of the Eastern world, well then, there were temple prostitutes. If you've been in the series, I think both Caleb and Jeff have at some time mentioned something how they come into the storyline here where well, the temple prostitutes were saying, hey, modesty is not in my, in, in, in my description. I'm, I mean, I'm a prostitute. no well, modesty there. And nobody's going to tell me what I need to do. And therefore, they took off the veils and they shaved their heads even, which was just making a declaration don't count me as part of that people. That's just the way they did and it was very obvious who they were at that point. They were rebelling. Then comes the birth of the Christian church in Corinth one particular city that he's writing to, the Apostle Paul. The people there began to think well there is no requirement you know in terms of God. We don't have to have a head covering. We don't have to have why would we do that? And, and so, hmm. And then the thought was, well, you know, as the gospel has come to us, we have realized that we're elevated in stature in the presence of God and who we are in our elevation. Well, why would we need that kind of thing? And so what they did was basically took a good thing too far. Instead of just taking off the veil, taking off the, the head covering, It was an idea to say, there's no distinction now between men and women. And that was the challenge that the Apostle Paul was having to address. Now, the question is going to be dealt with again next week in the text. Uh, What about head coverings and hair length and all that? But here's the primary teaching. I noted, these are my words, just summarizing. I said, actually, it's women should conform in dress code to the highest moral standards one's community demands. That's basically what's being said. Now I I think we began to kind of get a feel for when something is not really appropriate, though there's no written word to say, oh, the dress needs to be up this high, it needs to be down that low, a man should have whatever. No, But we kind of can tell, we kind of in general know. I was invited to speak at, at a church in another country and I was actually warned by the leadership. It's going to be a shock to you when you see the women. And I kind of have to let you know that it's a little different here. It was just, everything in me said inappropriate, inappropriate, inappropriate. It wasn't the right thing. How do I know that? Well, I mean, I can't give you some formula. But, and so that's what he's trying to address in this. But I want you to know this. The real issue is not... Can, does a woman does a woman wear a hat to church? The real issue is: Does she wear the pants in the family or in the church? Is she the authority? Is she in leadership? That kind of thing. That was the real issue that they're facing. So, is there a distinction between the the roles of men and women? That's where this whole thing is leading. So, with that, we look at verse two. Here's what verse two says: Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to to you. So the only thing we really need to understand there is what is the traditions. Now we read it and, and we think that, oh, that's historical traditions, what's kind of become common. No, this is actually referring to what the authorities in the church have been saying. But it's called traditions because it's not written in the Word of God. This word written is very important. From the Old to the New Testament, Jesus talked about, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and this is what's written, as so-and-so has written. So it's very important when it's written, because now we're talking about, he's referring to that which would be God's word, the infallible rule of faith and practice. It's now going to go from tradition to written word. And he's saying it's not been in written word, it's only been in tradition, but you know what I've been teaching. So he's going to try to clarify two traditions that were being distorted. The first one was the whole issue of of male leadership. The second had to do with the Lord's table, which comes later in the text. And so this dealing with this whole idea of what about male leadership? So verse 3 gives us, here's the principle. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, note there are three statements put together here. Uh, First of all, that Christ is the head of every man. I doubt anybody has a problem with that one. How about the last, the third, and God is the head of Christ? Any problem with that one? Maybe you don't understand it fully, but probably don't say, well, that gives me a problem, No. The middle one gives us a problem. The man is the head of the woman. That's the huge debate of today. Is that really true or is it not? Now this idea of God is the head of Christ, let's make sure we clarify that because this becomes a model to us. God uh, God is the head of Christ. Do you know when Jesus came to earth, he is quoted as saying, the Father and I are one. And then he also says, but the Father is greater than I. Isn't that interesting? Well, is that not a contradiction? Wait, the Father and I are one, but he's greater than I? Hold it, we'll come back to it. Take the statement that's so hard. What about the statement here? Man is the head of a woman. In verses 8-12 through we're going to find out next week we're going to find out that this points to the creation order. He says this is because, what we're teaching here is because of creation. Keep that in mind. Not because of culture but because of creation. Then he begins to dig into the distinction between the two. Now I want to say this right off the bat. Men have grossly abused this teaching, grossly abused it. And I'm not talking about just in the world, I'm talking about in the church. And I'm not talking about just in the church, I'm talking about in the world. It's grossly abused. The idea that, that you, know, you know, women, you, you're under me, and therefore, here's what you do, woman. Here's what you don't do. And you must, and you can't, and you have to. And remember this. The Bible tells us so. and That's what's been happening. So it was in the 1960s. I remember it well. And all of a sudden, women said, enough is enough. And I applaud them for what they did. They said, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And there was a rebellion. And it's kind of had a, a name at that time uh, for an amendment that they were trying to get. The Equal Rights Amendment, which is perfectly legitimate to fight for. I want to suggest this, though. They did it with a wrong presupposition that led it in the wrong way. The wrong presupposition was the reason that we're doing this is because we've been treated so unfairly, correct, but instead of fighting for equality, they started fighting for sameness. We ought to be viewed the same. Boy, was that not the evil one's great strategy. Now, now, the argument begins to prevail and people start listening and holding on to it and so forth. But the wrong presupposition carried this belief that many of us hold today. It's wrong, but it's according to the Bible. But it's the idea that if you're dealing with submission, you're dealing with inferiority. Wrong. You say, well, you can't. How are you going to tell me? They ain't going to tell me that you can? you're in submission under somebody else and you're not inferior to them. I said, well, and easy if you believe in the word of God. You know how? Look at the model of the Trinity. So I ask you that, that know the Bible and, and so forth. Would you agree as all the historical church has believed that, that God is one God in three persons? Most people go, yeah. Well, it is true. Well, let me ask you, are the three persons equal? I hope we'd say Yes. In fact, the historical church defines as equal in power, equal in substance, and equal in glory. So the answer is, yeah, that that would be true. All right, well, let's push it a little further. When God the Son chose to come to earth, incarnate, meaning in flesh, was he still equal to the Father in power, substance, and glory? And if you're theologically astute, you know the history of the church would all agree and say, Yes, he is. So here's my question. When he is equal in power, substance and glory incarnate, was he in submission to the Father, yes or no? And the answer is yes. By his own words, he was in submission to the Father. It didn't make him inferior. Not in any form or any fashion. So you find that this distortion... It is going to be present wherever you eliminate the two key words that always go with it men and women alike. Listen to this there's the word love. You will not see a real teaching in scripture about submission without the word love coming as it relates to the man, if you're talking about male, female. And by the way, it has nothing to do in politics, it has nothing to do in business, it's only in family, whether it be the ecclesiastical church family or whether it be in the biological family as we know it. It's the only place it's addressed in Scripture, in those two arenas. But the whole understanding here is that love, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, you're going to see if it says anything about a woman being in submission to her husband, well, let me tell you, you're going to see immediately, husbands love your wives. There's not a motivation for the woman outside of just pure obedience but give her motivation. You love. Why, why would Jesus put Himself, as we're we're going to see it in Philippians two, as a bond servant, a bond servant, because of the love of the Father. Why would He put Himself in submission to the Father? Because the Father showed absolute perfect love. He was so loved by the Father. He goes, Yes, Father, I want to do that. He wasn't made to do it. He didn't have. No, it was he longed to do so. So you got to always keep the companion word love there. But there's another one too that always has to be remembered. It's the word exaltation. With submission comes exaltation. Jesus taught it across his entire teaching ministry. He says, hey, you know, serve and, and you'll be ready. To last, you'll be first. It's always, you be the, you be the, the servant. You, you put yourself under and you'll be elevated. That's what comes. It's exaltation that comes As a result of that now you look at the history of the of 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 the word of God as it's gone into cultures there's cultures with no scripture at all what do you think is normative for the role of women in those cultures do you think they're highly elevated and so forth no they're they're suppressed badly why because there's just the physical to evaluate worth and so, man is for the most part stronger than the female, so more important, more valuable. So the woman gets put down, and the, and the, that's the way it is. You know what happens whenever the gospel goes into those cultures? The role of the woman is elevated. Here's an example: When you think of the Bible Belt of America, though it may be really tarnished, but where is the Bible Belt in America? South, right? It's the last vestige of the Bible Belt and it's pretty much rusted to the point it's barely working but it is still the south where's the last place that you find a man saying oh they call it southern gentleman right oh here let me open the door for you I opened the door for somebody one point a lady and she jumped all over me said you don't think I can open my own door (laughs) I'm just trying to be nice I don't know (laughs) oh let me carry the luggage or how about this one when the ship is going down, there's not enough lifeboats for everybody. Who gets the lifeboats? The man does. Of course, he's superior. <laughs> Uh-oh, no, that's not true. Is The lady gets the boat. Why would she get the boat when she... Well, that does, if she's inferior, why would inferior get the advantage there? Oh, it's because, oh, no, no, you're not inferior. In fact... You're exalted. You're female. That's the way it's designed to be. Those two words have to go together. Here you see it in Philippians 2. As it deals with God. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's what he did. Who although he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. And that's of the privileges that he has. To be able to. To, uh, to be in the heavenlies. Taking the form of a bondservant. There he is, a servant. You're talking about somebody who is submissive? It's a, it's a servant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. Ah. Huh. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the way, is not the Father, is he not Yahweh, Adonai, Lord? Of course he is. But which one will all tongues confess Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. The Father says, well, that's not right. He says, yes. Just like a husband that really loves his wife says, yes, she's elevated. She should be. So men, I want you to hear this. You got. To, I hope you understand this. Headship does not mean domination. It does not mean I can have my way, I can do what I want to do, and I can bully my way into what, and the Bible tells me so. Do not go there. That is not true. Let me tell you, real headship involves equality. Yes, different roles, but equality with love and the constant exaltation of the wife. And people are abusing, abusing women in the name of the Bible and Christianity. And it's wrong. Don't do that, and certainly don't do it and say, Yes, I'm a Christian. It's just not true. Next week, we'll look at the cultural expression regarding authentic manhood and womanhood. Plus, at the end, I'm gonna add. A contrast of characteristics of authentic and unauthentic manhood and womanhood. And I think there's going to be a little bit of, ah, among us. To realize that, well, I thought that was, that was manliness there. That's being a real man. Some of us going to realize, that's not being a man at all. Or here's what it means to be a real woman today. And go, that's not what it means to be a woman. Now. Having said all that, why teach this? Do I not know that next week there'll be less people in church? There will be. <laughs> I, I, don't that, I don't say that to be humorous. There will be fewer people. There will be. And, but here's the thing. I hope you know of this church. We've never had a size we want to be. And Oh, if we can only boast a number. We don't care about that. We wanna win people to faith, absolutely. We wanna take Christians and help them understand how to live in the world and impact people and all that, absolutely so, but that's really not our motivation. Why do we do that? Why do we teach this? Knowing it's gonna cause some people to, "Mm, no, no. It's because we wanna honor God, we wanna honor his word. That's what the Christian church is to do, it has no other option, that's what we do. And those that love their God, they love honoring God. They love honoring his word. Absolutely. But also, we teach this for our own well-being. We lose great benefit when you strip of this theology. We've seen that in the world today. What happened when they started stripping? Now the abuse of women goes up. All the issues are worse than ever. Of course, we've moved away from what God's word has to say. We also do it for our kids and we do it for our grandkids. I grieve over what I think they're going to have to walk through as I watch the change in preaching a text decade to decade. I cannot even imagine. And so, my question is this if we don't teach it in the church, where are they going to hear it? Are they hear it in the school? No. They're going to hear it in the libraries by what they read? No. They're going to hear it on the media? No. Where do they hear it? Hopefully the church will be faithful to what God's word has to say. Last thing. It takes you to the gospel. It really does. Because you know what the gospel is? The gospel, it's the story of Jesus Christ who said, Though I'm equal with you, Father, I want to put myself in submission to you. And as a result of being in submission and taking on the cross that would pay for his children, he becomes the exalted one with a name that is above every name so that every person who by God's grace chooses to say, I'll put myself in submission to you. Not just say, I'll be a Christian, but in submission to you we are then exalted and we're given a name above every name of mankind and the name is righteous we're made righteous seeker would you like that And why don't you ask God Oh God accept me to be your servant I'll surrender to you thank you for the exaltation that even you experience that you're gonna share with me and Christian Some of us might need to repent of a wrong belief system. We've denied what God says because it felt so good to believe what we believe. And as Christians, we've given ourselves to submission to him and his word. And so the next generation, your kids, they need you now. Let us each turn to him now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're gonna ask you that you would Allow us to, as your children first, to say, God, grant us forgiveness for denying what you've said and believing the world instead of your word. Please forgive us. I pray for those of us here that are abusing our spouses. I pray, Father, that you would grant there to be forgiveness. For those that would say, God, I'm wrong. Forgive me. Let there be love and exaltation in families all this week that would not have taken place otherwise. I pray, Father, for the seeking community among us. Let them now put themselves in submission to you and as a result find the exaltation and be given the name righteous. Thank you for your goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen